from Romans, the mature children of God are those who are moved by the impulses of the Holy Spirit. And you did not receive a spirit of religious duty, leading you back into the fear of never being good enough. But you have received the spirit of full acceptance, enfolding you into the family of God. That you will never feel orphaned, for as he rises up within us, our spirits join him in saying the words of tender affection, beloved Father. For the Holy Spirit makes God's fatherhood real to us as he whispers into our innermost being, you are God's beloved child. So as we sing this next song, we can sing and proclaim the truth of who we really are as we walk with Christ. There's no fear in his love. We don't have to be slaves of this world, but to rejoice in who we are in Christ if we know him personally. So as we sing this song, let's just uh, proclaim that truth. Chosen, not forsaken. 
for that truth. Blessed Well, good morning, church. A few announcements this morning, and then we'll have our prayer time and our offering. Um, first off, just want to point out in the bulletin, on the tear-off section, there's a, a list of the teachers that help out with Sunday morning, with Wednesday night. When we put that on the tear-off section, we would invite you to, to just tear that off and 
stick that in your Bible or your journal or put it up on your fridge, just a place where you would see those names, be reminded of that, invite you to pray for them on a regular basis. There's um, just remarkable opportunity and ministry that is going on through that, and we want to be sure to uh, uplift and support those people in prayer. So, um, yeah, just a, a reminder of that, that that's going on. Um, team leaders, a reminder, we're meeting uh, this Monday night. Uh, those details are in your bulletin. Uh, also, kind of a, a couple neat things. Uh, one of the things that this church uh, continues to do is uh, welcome baskets for people who move into the community, and then Mike Yoder is able to go and take those uh, to people as they move into town. And so that was something that we put together several years ago and just uh, have slowly been working on. And I think this last time he was it seven or eight that he came and caught uh, eight K, which is fantastic. So new people are moving into town. Keep your eye open. And uh, if you don't recognize someone, um, introduce yourself, invite them to church, whatever, you know, just, yeah, go for it. So um, just wanted to, to let you know about that. And also just another reminder, you know, with, with Wednesday night, it's such a, a neat opportunity. We have a lot of people from the community who come and participate and join us for a meal. But just a reminder that in many ways, this is your home turf, meaning the burden is on you and I to play the host, initiate conversation, and extend hospitality. Um, so just just a reminder to do that. I know that it, and a reminder to myself as well too, it can be very easy to simply sit with people you know uh, but just to initiate and sit with someone you don't know as well or who may be sitting by yourself. You actually see that we revamped the tables a little bit um, as a way to allow more families to sit in uh, around a table. So just a reminder on that. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll carry on with the service. Heavenly Father, thank you for a good day. And Lord, it's good because of who you are. Sometimes the circumstances are hard. Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes it's confusing or full of question marks. But God, we rest in you. And we look to you. Lord, we thank you that Helen is recovering well from her knee surgery. Lord, we pray for others with health conditions. Lord, this morning as we look at your word and scripture and as we fellowship and sing and worship, may we once again find hope in you, in your character, in the future that you promise. May we not be overly distracted by the sorrows of today or even overly distracted by the joys of today. But may we keep that focus on you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your salvation. You are so precious. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thank you. 
Thank you, worship team. Sam and Owen, it's great to have you up here. Thanks, guys. So in the U.S., we have a, a financial credit score system, right? I mean, you, you pay your car off on time. You're not overly delinquent on your credit card. You get a good score, and it helps you out when you need a mortgage or, or something like that. And it's... We've got this financial credit score system. Um, China also has a, some kind of financial credit score system. What's interesting, though, is that they are um, moving forward on a social credit system that will affect your financial credit score system as well, too. And what the government is attempting to do is that they are assigning a trust score to each of its 1.4 billion citizens and businesses in China and businesses who conduct business in China and to some extent measure their trustworthiness. Um, but what's interesting, though, is that actually it's not just measuring their trustworthiness. Really, it, it, it's looking to coerce them into certain pro-government behaviors. Um, this was actually rolled out in 2014. Just Google China social credit score, and you'll get up all kinds of articles on this. Um, they're planning to, to have it fully operational by 2020. 
Um, it's not a new thing for a country to try to monitor or control the behaviors or the attitudes of citizens. What's unique in this situation, though, is that the extent to which they're looking to leverage technology to do this. Um, as an example, they already have 200 million cameras up and running, um, but they're looking to get that up to 600 million cameras in, in the next couple years. And then by incorporating geo-tracking, facial recognition, that kind of thing, they, uh, they also link it to your medical records, to your financial records, to your educational records. They, they assemble some kind of trust score and, and assign that to you, and then you get different um, penalties or perks based on your score. And so if you have a good score, you get VIP access, all right, for kind of the upper echelon of the score. Um, they get fast tracking on the most prestigious, prestigious universities. They get better treatment at airports. They get discounted loans. They get discounted energy bills. They uh, get faster access to medical care, hotel rentals, car rentals. You can get those without needing a deposit, uh, priority job applications. And so to get this good score, you, you pay your bills on time, and, and you're very pro-government, and you recycle, and you engage in charity work, and you do well in school and that kind of thing. If you have a bad social credit score... Uh, it affects your access to education. You are barred from certain jobs. You're refused certain loans. You're actually blocked from getting on certain dating websites. So there you go. Um, 2017, China already banned 1.6 million citizens from airlines uh, flying uh, for certain uh, social misdeeds. Uh, penalties include losing the right to travel by plane or by fast train. Uh, social media accounts can be uh, shut down or suspended. Um, there were 17 people who refused to carry out military service last year, and they were barred from all future education at all levels. Uh, just they, they get nothing. Uh, there was an investigative journalist. He made accusations against the government. He was banned as dishonest. He is not allowed to travel by airlines, by fast rail. His social media accounts were shut down, all kinds of things. Um, there was a Japanese company that did business in China. Some of their products were labeled as being made in Taiwan, and they named Taiwan as a country, not as a province of China. There's a whole backstory on that. If you want some more of that information, talk to Joanne. She can help you out. She lived in Taiwan. The, uh, the Chinese government then fined that company 200,000 won. I think I'm saying that right. Local currency. Um, airlines are now updating all of their websites. Airlines who just fly into China are updating their websites to be more compliant with this new social credit score system. And the things that will affect your uh, social credit score, um, late payments on your bills, smoking in non-smoking areas, utilizing facial recognition technology, um, buying too much alcohol, playing too much video games. Uh, there's certain video games that I, somehow the government is controlling. If you do more than 10 hours a day, which you shouldn't, but if you do, uh, it now affects your social credit score. Jaywalking will affect your, your credit score. And they actually now have systems in place where if you jaywalk, they have cameras set up, and it will track that, that you are outside the lines. And then I think it does facial recognition. But then it puts your picture on a screen off to the side, and attempts to publicly shame you for not walking directly on those white lines when you, when you cross the street. If your best friend, if your dad says something bad about the government, 
then you will take a hit on your score. So actually, it encourages you to distance yourself from people who may be saying bad things uh, about the, the government. Um, even wasting money on frivolous purchases can, can affect that. So it's kind of interesting to speculate. I mean, what are the odds that a communist government, which is self-proclaimed as atheist, is now going to use a trustworthiness score assigned to all citizens to leverage that to now restrict and oppress the church? I mean, in China, churches are already required to be registered with the government, and if you are registered with the government, then the government has a say in your theology and who gets appointed into leadership positions. And if you're not registered with the government, then you're considered an underground church, but some of the underground churches are still public. There was an underground church, though, that just built a new $3 million facility, uh, 50,000 members, but it was unregistered, so the government blew it up and just leveled the whole place. People, nations, their leaders in a lot of places, not just China. I mean, China's easy just because you can Google it so fast. Uh, but stuff like this happens in a lot of places of the world. What is, and, and as a church, like how do we deal with that? Like what is our response to that? I mean, there are brothers and sisters in the Lord who are living in this environment. And maybe they're concerned about it. Maybe not. Maybe Maybe it's not that big of a deal. Maybe they are not terrified. Maybe they should be terrified. Maybe we're making too big. A, I don't know. But this is this seems like a big thing. It, it like, like a really bad sci-fi movie, like out of the 80s or two years ago off Netflix or something like that, right? Like where there's these government computers that control everything. Psalms 2 speaks to issues like what's happening in China. We're going to look at Psalm 2 today. Before we delve into to Psalm 2, just a little bit about the Psalms. I've been kind of re-amazed um, with, with the book of Psalms. Uh, we're going to be doing a short series now on selected Psalms as we lead up to Advent, actually, here uh, just a, a few short weeks away. So in the middle of your Bible, typically, you know, if you want to find Psalms, you just kind of flip it open to the middle. Um, and you have the book of Psalms, 150 chapters and, uh, and a whole lot of stuff. The Psalms were a collection of songs that were collected, um, really over about a thousand year span. Uh, and it's amazing because like, like God's people like to sing. God's people like music. I, I'm actually not aware of other religions that like to incorporate music and worship and praise as much as Christians. Maybe they're out there. That, that's really cool. I'm just saying I'm not aware of it as of yet. When God brought his people out of captivity, they sang a song. When God gave Israel victory under the leadership of Deborah and Barak, they sang a song. When David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, they sang a song. When Hezekiah restored temple worship, they sang songs. When the angel appeared to Mary, she sang a song. At the conclusion of the Lord's Supper, just before they went out onto the Mount of Olives, it says they sang a hymn. 
when Paul and Silas were thrown into prison, they sang songs. And beyond Scripture, God's people have continued to sing. Uh, in A.D. 112, uh, Pliny, I hope I'm saying that right, wrote a letter to the emperor that reported that, amongst other things, Christians sang hymns to Christ as God. In 1415, um, a Bohemian reformer uh, sang songs as he was burned at the stake. During the Reformation, Martin Luther promoted music in the church. Uh, the great revivalists, the Wesleys in the 18th century, and Moody and Sankey and others, um, huge upsurge in singing songs and hymns in our own Mennonite brethren tradition, a love of music. And one day when we're gathered in heaven, all of us together, we're going to sing songs. Old songs and new songs. Just all of them. Longest book of the Bible, book of Psalms. Book most quoted in the New Testament, Psalms. Their, their, their version of a worship hymn. Psalm comes from the Greek word uh, meaning a song that is sung to a stringed instrument. Uh, the book is also called a psalter, uh, and it means praises. Every psalm, except for one, contains praise to God. There's actually, this was kind of interesting, there's actually five books within psalms, and, and, and your Bible will likely have them labeled. Um, uh, you know, if you go to Psalm chapter 1, it'll probably say book 1. Uh, if you flip over to Psalm 42 there's a good chance that it will be labeled book two. Five different books. Um, the first book, um, predominantly dated by, uh, uh, dom um, dominated by Psalms of David, mostly personal Psalms out of his experience. So mostly uh, what David wrote is going to be in, in that book one. Book two, probably compiled by Solomon. There's more of a national interest going on in book two. Um, book 3 was probably compiled after Jerusalem was destroyed in 586. There's various psalms that give reference to that. Uh, uh, book 4, this one may have also been compiled by David. I'm not really sure. But book 4 has more of a corporate view on worship as compared to the individ individualistic view of book 1. Um, and then book five um, probably came into being after they returned from exile. A while back, we studied Nehemiah, and we talked about how Israel was conquered by foreign nations, hauled off, and then they were returning to Jerusalem in, in different ways. The, the oldest psalm is Psalm 90, and it was written by Moses around 1400 B.C. Then you have a lot of other psalms that were written, and they think what happened is that around four. 444 B.C., someone, maybe Ezra, took these five different books, compiled them together in one set, wrote an intro psalm, Psalm 1, and then wrote a doxology for the whole book, Psalm 146 to, to Psalm 150. I mean, each of the books has its own doxology, its own concluding psalm at, at the very end, but then Psalm 150 really kind of wraps up the entire set of, of 150. There are notes in a lot of the different psalms that indicate who wrote it or what it was for or even what kind of music it was. Some are designated as a psalm, which would be a stringed instrument. Some are designated as a song, so that would be a joyful melody. Some are 
uh, designated as a maskil. So that would be like a contemplative psalm. Uh, and then there's other terms that get incorporated, and some we know what they mean, and, and, some, and some that we don't. Some are tagged for certain occasions. This is for the Sabbath. This is for Thanksgiving, that kind of thing. Um, they use poetry. So you're going to find parallelisms and figures of speech and acrostics. Psalm 119, longest psalm in the book, longest chapter in the Bible. Each section begins with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, you know, kind of like, you know, this section starts with the letter A, and this section starts with the letter B, and this section starts with the letter C, that kind of thing. So that's Psalm 119. Also, the Psalms, in how they wrote it, they rhyme ideas, not words. Our poetry today, we rhyme words. They rhymed ideas, which is nice because, one, it translates easier, um, but, two, it it doesn't have kind of like the poetic flow that, of rhyming that, that, that we are more um, used to. Here's the other thing, though, that, that you have to remember about the book of Psalms. And that is that a lot of these were written in tears and blood. You know, a lot of these, you know, the guy didn't sit down with his latte and just sort of jot a few thoughts. These were written in the moment of deep, deep emotion. And I think if you're going to read the Psalms and really try to understand them, you really have to almost seek out the emotion that that this was written in. Uh, in college, we, we did the musical Godspell, and one of the most haunting songs, I think, was, um, was a, a, a song called On the Willows, and it's taken from Psalm 137. Psalm 137 reads like this. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. So they're they're musical instruments, a a stringed instrument. We hung them up on the willows. For our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The last verse in Psalm 117 is is quite controversial. My take on it, though, is that the Israelites had actually witnessed their captors kill their children in front of their own eyes. So the setting on this, they've been hauled off into captivity, I believe they've just watched a lot of the younger children be killed before them. They're brought into a foreign land, and their their captors are mocking them and saying, hey, sing us some of the happy songs that you used to sing back home. And they take all their musical instruments, and they hang them up in the trees, and they say, no, we will not sing those songs in a foreign land. Deep deep emotion on on some of these psalms another way that you could look at it that or i think again or this is an analogy i've used in the past is simply like a, a, an art museum right you go through a, an art museum and some paintings are huge and magnificent and take up the whole wall and some are like this big and some are joyous and some are funny and some just make no sense like you had no idea what was going on with that one right 
like that when you stroll through the Psalms. Like some are big and are very clear and to the point, but some are mysterious or you don't know what's going on. And this one has deep joy and this one has deep grief. And this one is just confusing. We have no idea what's going on. When you read the Psalms, don't don't read them as an analyst. Read them as a poet or just someone experiencing the ups and downs of life. To read the psalm well, you cannot read it void of emotion. For today, I was drawn to, to Psalm 2. We'll do uh, a psalm, or my plan is to do a psalm out of the, out of the five different books. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is actually quoted seven times in the New Testament. Um, that was new to me. I didn't know that. Um, every time, it is in reference to Jesus Christ as the Messiah or as the anointed one. Uh, This would make Psalm 2 a messianic psalm, a prophetic psalm. It is foretelling something about Jesus. And some of these things have come about, and some of them have not quite come about. They're they're, they're still coming. Um, In the book of Acts, we're told that David wrote this. And uh, some people think that maybe David was writing it about himself, but there's just far too many inconsistencies on that. Um, So it it really does appear to be associated with Christ. And in many ways, Psalm 2 mirrors Psalm 1. I mean, in in Psalm 1, we we have a fantastic psalm, an intro psalm about uh, holiness and and just personally, um, you know, blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Psalm 2 has a lot of the same themes, but it's really kind of more at a corporate or international level. Psalm 1 begins with a beatitude. Psalm 2 ends with a beatitude. And it almost seems to kind of sandwich all of them together. Psalm 2 is also a good starting point on how do you deal with situations like what's going on in China or other places around the world? Like what's our, it's not a full strategy, but just as a starting point, like how do you even begin to engage in something like that? Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the psalm begins with with the voice of the nations, and really it's a voice of rebellion. The word rage that you see right away in verse 1 means to assemble tumultuously. So this is, a, this is a grassroots movement. This is the people gathering together it just in, in a rage, in assemblies. The entire nation is gathering. But then the second verse tells us that it's not just the, the people gathering, but it's their leaders. And they're involved as well. And, and they're coming together and they're taking their stand against God and and they're gathering with others who who would agree with them and their stand is very clearly against God, against his anointed. Uh, The Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. Uh, In the Greek it's translated as Christ. They they both kind of mean the same thing. They're speaking of Jesus. And the people and their leaders say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In NIV it's going to read, let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. It's poetry, but basically what they're saying is that we want nothing to do with God. 
nothing to do with his leadership. We don't want to follow God. We do not want to obey him. We do not want to submit to him. We want God out of our life in every way possible. We want nothing to do with God. It's an attitude that I think we're seeing grow in our nation as well, too. Just that attitude of, I want nothing to do with God. Just kick him out as much as possible. According to the book of Revelation, this attitude is going to continue and to grow in momentum until the kings of the earth unite to fight against God. Several years ago, I was watching um, inside the actor's studio. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I don't even know if it's still on. I think it's an old show. There was this host, uh, James Lipton. He'd sit at this big desk, and he'd have this big stack of blue note cards, and, and he would have different famous actors on, and he'd interview them and ask them all these questions. And then in the audience, you had all these aspiring actors and, and stuff. And, and I remember, that, uh, for whatever reason, this stuck in my mind. This was years ago. Uh, he, ha- he had on Robert De Niro, and towards the end, he goes, if heaven exists, what would you want to hear God say? And Robert De Niro paused, and then he goes, if heaven exists, and he's got a lot of explaining to do. And everyone kind of laughed and, and chuckled, and you know, and that kind of thing. And, and in one regard, like, you know, it indicates a person who doesn't know, who doesn't understand the fullness of Christ and of God, who doesn't understand his heart of all that he has done of salvation in Christ, how God operates, the, the, the heart that he has for, for the world. And, and so in some regards, it's kind of sad. And that's the opinion of a lot of people, right? I mean, they don't understand, so they kind of have this snarky, sarcastic attitude But actually, woven in it, there's kind of this air of superiority that says, well, when I get to heaven, God is going to have to answer to me because I have some questions and he has some explaining to do. And to me, it's a great example of people just in the early stages of that tumultuous gathering. One day, God and Robert De Niro are going to meet. And if, and if De Niro never accepts the grace and the salvation offered by Christ, it will not be God fumbling for him an explanation. For anyone who has not received Christ as Savior, who has not received his forgiveness, who has not confessed him as Lord, that is going to be a terrifying day. And there are going to be a whole lot of people laying prostrate before the Lord fumbling for excuses, trying to explain themselves, and begging for mercy. And I find it ironic how much De Niro has those roles so dramatically reversed. Verses 4 to 6, we see the voice of the Father. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So in this next section, so first the nations speak, then the Father speaks and gives us God's views. And this uprising of the nations is so outmatched, so unbalanced, so unfair, that like God actually laughs a little. Like this is comical to him. Like this is so unbalanced. It's like, yeah, he just... He finds it amusing for a moment. 
I mean, to us, the nations are a big thing. Like you, we, I mean, we vote, but like we can't. It's how do you change the nations? What's going on in China? What's going on in other parts of the world? What, what's going on in our country? So often it just seems so totally beyond us and none of us are able to stop it or, or stand against it. But to God, like it's so small, it's a joke. Do you realize that in the end times when it talks about Satan getting thrown into prison that God doesn't even bother doing that himself? He just sends one of his servants to do it. There, there comes a time where, where, where literally Satan will be grabbed by the collar and thrown in a prison cell. God doesn't even bother. He sends one of the angels. Like it's just so beneath him. It's like, I, you do it. God speaks and, and, and fills the hearers with terror. And the words that he speaks are that his anointed, Jesus Christ, has been placed on the throne and that he is king of all. The most quoted verse out of all the Old Testament is Psalm 110, verse 1. I mean, or the New Testament, that the New Testament quotes this one more than any other verse. The Lord said to my Lord, or that would be God the Father said to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. New Testament quotes that verse more than any other verse out of the Old Testament. And that's what's what's happening here. The word fury in verse 5 means his fiery anger, so it, it's very possibly a reference to the tribulation uh, described in Revelation 6 to 19, just a time of horrible judgment upon the land. Um, but we are not there yet. We are blessed to live in an era where God has not yet spoken the fullness of his wrath. Instead, we live in an era where God has spoken very gentle words of invitation and grace and mercy and is pleading with us to come to him and and to be reconciled to him. But a day is coming when that offer will expire, when God says enough is enough, it's time for a new season, and our opportunity to receive his grace and forgiveness will end. The the missionary evangelistic mandate of the church has got an expiry date on it, where that's no longer a, a thing that we do. Now, some stuff, praise and worship, we get to do that forever. But the missionary work, that's a ticking clock. And we don't know what the time is on it. We just know it's ticking. This section has partly come, but not yet come in full. Verse 7 then begins with the voice of the Son. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my Son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So here we see Christ speaking. He shares what God the Father has told him. Uh, The phrase, today you have become my son, uh, I have begotten you, that can be a little bit confusing. But whenever that phrase is used, it's actually used in conjunction with Christ entering into that role of sitting at, at the right hand of God. It, it's, it, it's a phrase that, that references assuming a position, not assuming a relationship. From the very beginning, we hear God the Father saying, this is my son. But this particular wording, today I've begotten you, whenever that's used, that's associated 
with Christ stepping into that office or, or to that role uh, of, of being seated at the right hand of God. After his work on the cross, Christ inherited all the nations. God gave him all the nations to rule. And when Christ returns the second time, he will step into the fullness of that inheritance and assume the role of, of the nations. At one, uh, There's a, a point in Jesus' ministry where he tells the parable of the owner of a vineyard who goes on a journey and then comes back and, and repays his workers accordingly. While he is gone, the vineyard is still his. But when he returns, he will really start to enact some justice. And it's a great parable to, uh, uh, to what we see going on here. Verse 10. This may be the voice of the narrator, or the author. It may be the voice of the Holy Spirit, uh, which is kind of nice because then there's kind of this flow of Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit all getting a chance to speak. Regardless, the fourth voice speaks. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's a petition for us to follow Jesus. And whether it is the Holy Spirit or, or the narrator, who knows, but a petition for us to follow Jesus. Kiss was not so much to kiss the face, but actually refers more to bowing down in submissive prostration before a conqueror. It's more akin to, to kiss the feet in humble servitude. So either we stick to our rebellion, verse 1, and face the fierce wrath, or we kiss the feet in an attitude of submission and of gratitude and of honor. And it's remarkable because actually in many ways, Psalm 2 is the gospel message. It starts with our own sin, our own rebellion, talks about the justice of God, and it begs us to be reconciled to God and, and to accept his salvation. As I mentioned, Psalm 1 begins with the beatitude, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Psalm 2 ends with the beatitude, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you have not taken refuge in him, then that becomes your number one application takeaway point out of this psalm. That, that is priority number one. You talk to me, you talk to someone else, but the biggest application becomes how do I take refuge in him? Beyond that, you know, I mean, what's happening in China and, and other parts of, of the world, other communist countries, it's really dis disturbing, and a day is coming when God will make things right. But this psalm reminds us who's in control, how things will end. And in doing so, it gives us hope. It's not a full strategy. I mean, there's a lot of work to do, and how can we pray for brothers and sisters in these environments? How can we help them? How can we learn from them? Our hope of future peace does not negate immediate action. There is still current work to do. And Psalm 2 doesn't necessarily dive into the depths of that strategy, but it does give us hope. And it reminds us 
who really is the king and who really does sit on the throne and that he will make things right. Lastly, uh, as we mentioned, read the Psalms, but not as an analyst, but as much as possible, read them as a poet, as a lover of art. These were written with tears and blood. They were written in times of great joy, of great sorrow, of great weeping, of great worship, of wise reflection, in times of gratitude and of, and of thankfulness, and there's deep emotion behind them. But what's interesting is that sometimes they provide the words that we struggle to find. Music does that sometimes for us. Music expresses emotions that we don't have words for. Sometimes the Psalms can give us words for things that, that, that we struggle to verbalize. Rick Warren talks about knowing this lady who is just, just her prayers were always just fantastic. And one day he finally asked her, he said, where did you learn to pray? She said, I prayed the hymns and I prayed the Psalms. Over and over and over. And from those, I learned how to pray. So may you find the words that you're looking for in the Psalms of Scripture. May you find hope for how to handle today's tumultuous world. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, around us the world is in a state of rebellion. And Lord, at times our own hearts wrestle with a state of rebellion. I mean, that is not just an out there thing. That's very much something that we individually continue to struggle with. And Lord, it can feel dark and, and overwhelming when nations do some of the things that they do. Or the masses rise up and clamor in, in, in a certain way. But Lord, we look to Psalm 2 and we are reminded that you are God. You are King of kings. You are Lord of lords. And that you have installed your son, Jesus Christ, on the throne. And that he is coming and that one day he will rule again and, and set things right. And Lord, for some people that is going to be a terrifying day. But Lord, for those who say yes to you, there is great comfort in that. Not just presently, but, but even for the future. That is a day that we look forward to and rejoice in. And when that day happens, it will be a massive sigh of relief on our part. That you are here to make things right. Lord, we pray for those who have not yet said yes to you, who, who have not yet received you, who have not yet accepted you. God, may they do that now before it's too late. May they not enter into that day with fear and trembling, but able to stand in your presence. God, thank you for this amazing book of Psalms. Thank you for the truth it holds, for the deep emotion it conveys, how it can give us words when we can't find words, and yet still has your truth saturated all throughout it. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that leads and guides and comforts and counsels and teaches and corrects. 
worship you and we love you. In your name, amen. Amen. Please stand as we respond in praise and worship. The one who's in control and is mighty above all. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever give. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Lord, we declare that, proclaim that this morning, that you alone are God, you alone are worthy of all praise and honor and glory, and uh, Lord, help us to build our lives upon you, take the breath from each of you this day, for in you is where we find Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.